Welcome to the M. Kane Coaching Podcast. My name's Marcus Kane, and today we're going to talk with PhD Aideen Butler about how the way we're fed as children can affect our relationship with food as adults. Now, I loved having this conversation because so many people who come to me often say things like, I can't trust my hunger cues. And this episode is going to provide some insight into that. We're also going to talk about how certain claims in the field of nutrition can't always be trusted and what you can do to make sure you're not fooled by misleading studies. So without further delay, here's Aideen Butler. Aideen, thank you so much for catching up with me today to record this episode. And before we get into the primary subject matter, it might be worth having a quick chat about how exactly we met. So when was that? 2013? Yeah, I think, yeah, it was about 2012, 13. You you had just come back from America, I think, at that point. Yeah. And since 2013, you've obviously gotten your PhD, which congratulations for that. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah. And just... Describe your first impressions of where we were living because we met in a share house in Melbourne in 2013. <laughs> so, can you, for everyone Am listening, I to swear? pardon? Am I allowed to swear? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> brilliant. What, what did our life look like in 2013? Where were we? What were we doing? What, what was that like? It was the most grim, depressing shithole I've ever lived in. <laughs> <laughs> See, so progress happens. Dreams do come true. Absolutely. And I think everybody should know that you saved my life by offering me a spare bedroom in your new apartment because things oh. were just really, really bad living in that place. <laughs> oh, my God. So it was essentially what there were three spare bedrooms above a massage place in uh, that was like a few doors up from a methadone clinic that yes. I think and when and I say we shared yeah. the kitchen with the massage place yeah yeah and it was a legitimate massage place by the way it was like, yeah. yeah it wasn't like you know dodgy <laughs> but but you know um yeah we had an interesting flatmate or roommate yes yeah, yeah she was she was intense yeah like she struck me as being just fine when we kind of first moved in and then things got a little strange what was the giveaway for you um the, the constant banging on my door this uh <laughs> Edie! Edie! <laughs> and then dragging me down the stairs to show me like one tiny piece of sweet corn that had you know gotten stuck in the sink and that kind of <laughs> stuff yeah there was and her obsession with the, um, as she called them, the downstairs people. Yeah, the downstairs people, right. Yes. So, yeah, long story short, we we got like, I found a place and uh, offered you a, a room in my new place and we got out of there. But yeah, it, and worth... the thing is, we'd barely really gotten a chance to know each other at that point because we didn't actually have a, like a lounge area or anything. But I remember when you said it to me, I was like, that guy is definitely more normal than that woman is. So I am going wherever he's going. <laughs> <laughs> because there were like mushrooms growing on the carpet in the room that you were staying in at that yes, point. Right? Yeah, because yeah. the shower went straight through to my my bedroom carpet. Oh my god. So here we are. You've gotten your PhD. You're like, you know, dreams do come true. Like things exactly. change. Exactly. I know. Yeah. <laughs> keep, keep plugging them. 
just keep picking those mushrooms off your carpet. So that said, for everyone listening, can you give us a, a bit of an overview? What exactly is your PhD in? What is your what is your area of expertise? Um, so my PhD, the title is um, Prediction and Prevention of Childhood Obesity. Yeah. So my PhD is actually unusually quite broad in that um, I came at childhood obesity looking at it from two different angles. So yeah. one angle was um, what if we were able to predict it, it's onset at age five yeah. um, from infancy. Yeah. And what kind of intervention would be put in place to support parents? You know, obviously, if you're telling somebody that information, you need to give them some support as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other angle of it, which you probably won't touch on so much today, was actually microbiome related. So yeah. um, it was to do with um, birth and how that influences the development of the microbiome, which is kind of we're starting to see is linked to obesity as well. So Within that prediction side, I would have looked a lot of interventions. And in that age group, um, obviously, there is physical activity to some extent, but not as much as it would be in other, older children. So you're kind of mainly talking about um, feeding and mm-hmm. sleeping. Mm. So as adults, most of us take our dynamic with food and our eating habits as a bit of a given. Like it's it's just the way we are, Right. But from your professional perspective, you've learned how many of those things can be established very early on in childhood. Can you give us some examples of some common food rules for kids that can become problematic? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, one example would be something like finish your plate before you leave the dinner table. I think that's something that a lot of us would have heard as children. <laughs> yeah. So, the reason that a lot of these types of rules, um, we're seeing them as be pro- being problematic is because they're actually overriding the child's sense of um, satiety, so their own ability mm-hmm. to regulate their own hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's even like from a very, very early age. So babies are naturally born being able to regulate their hunger. You know, mm-hmm. like um, when a baby's breastfed, there's not really any way of monitoring how many milliliters they're consuming, for example. Yeah. But babies intuitively know when they're full and when they want more. And they're usually quite good at letting their mothers know when they want more. Yeah. Um, but as children kind of, they may, you know, either be bottle fed or as they get older, um, adults have a lot more input into how they're fed and what they're fed and when they're fed. So those kind of rules, that's when they start to come into play and they are kind of working against the child's kind of innate sense of appetite regulation, essentially. That's amazing because something that people talk to me about almost daily is on on some level that they can't trust their hunger cues. People are constantly saying to me, do I do I eat when I'm hungry? Do I eat when I'm like based on the time of day? How much do I eat? Whatever. And then when we move away from structured diets and try to adopt a more intuitive approach, people who've tried the intuitive eating approach often come to me quite confused, quite frustrated going, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know when to eat intuitively. So do you think like these kind of things as adults can start as early as infancy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think they only become more and more ingrained as we get older um it's essentially when we're born our cues are very much internal 
And Mm -hmm. then as we get older, they start to become much more external. So whether that's your family or it's media or um, even your peer group or your school. So all of these start to influence when you eat, what you eat and how you eat it. And Mm. that's kind of taking away from that regulation. And yeah, so that's that's only kind of layering as we grow. So for some people who might be giving themselves a hard time thinking about, I can't trust my hunger cues. Why don't I know when I'm hungry? Why don't I know what we like? It might be an interesting takeaway already for anyone feeling that way to know that, you know, it's not entirely your fault. Absolutely not. No, no, definitely not. And it's part of modern living as well. And that, um, you know, the way the world is set up now, things run to time schedules. Right. Back when we were living as cavemen, essentially, nobody was wondering what time, you know, about their 11 o'clock coffee break. Yeah. You know, like we weren't living like that. And it's taken, you know, like we, we've really only lived to these kind of schedules since the Industrial Revolution, which in the context of world history is a very, very <laughs> small amount of time. Right. So, An extremely small amount of time. So it's not like I was going to ask, do you think these rules are problematic because they're outdated or have they always been a problem? But you just kind of answered that that question in the sense that since we started looking at watches and running off a time schedule and feeding based on that, uh, maybe since we've had more of, or since certain people in certain privileged positions have had more of an abundance of food, they've it's, been yeah. able to feed more. We yeah. just kind of feed more and more. Exactly. And like, definitely there may be, instances where they're um they are beneficial in terms of cases where you know like within the western world we don't tend to see food poverty as an absence of food it's it's more so nutritional food that's yeah. that can be absent and um, they're, they're generally and you know for the most part most people have access to food it just mm-hmm. may not necessarily be particularly nutritional food. Yeah, food. Nutrient-dense but um Certainly in, in cases, in maybe in, in some countries where that's not the case and people are living to more kind of harvest periods, which mm-hmm. we don't really understand in the Western world anymore. The concept that, you know, there might not be a type of food available in the supermarket at any time of the year doesn't really apply to us so much. Yeah. Um, but if you were li- preparing for times of scarcity, certainly those kind of things would be more beneficial. But in the world that we live in, not really. So the things that used to help us regulate our hunger um, over the last hundred years in the Western world have kind of just been overridden, starting at a very young age. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Like we're just a lot of that has come from external cues, essentially. So what kind of behaviors and feelings can manifest as a result of that? You know, maybe moving through the, the later stages of childhood and into teenage years what kind of yeah what kind of behaviors and feelings kind of can come from this well certainly um that kind of lack of um ability to regulate your hunger or not even ability lack of ability to be in tune with your hunger I guess you know to to Mm -hmm. respond to it um the other things during childhood that can kind of have quite a knock-on effect would be stuff like very very restrictive feeding mm-hmm. behavior so some parents can be very it's called um an authoritative feeding style so where they're they've got very very strict rules about what can be consumed mm. um so you know like chocolate is banned you know any any kind of treats treats are off the cards completely and children yeah. can, it actually can 
lead to this kind of obsession with these types of food so that yeah. when they are here binge eating becomes an issue so very interesting that you should say that because for anyone who's listened to any previous episodes or followed my content they'll they'll know that I talk about my teenage years as as times when my eating kind of started going funky let's say yeah. but um really like now that you mention it um my mom she had the, the best of intentions mm-hmm. but uh from quite an early age i was the kid who you know in our household like like chocolate was never in the house you know sweets yeah. were were kind of tucked away and were only brought out in very very special occasions you know there was only ever soy milk in the fridge not regular yes. milk and all all this kind of stuff and when i would go to a friend's house and like i said my mom had the best of intentions she was trying to make us as healthy as possible yeah um but i noticed that when i went to another kid's house i would be like oh my god like i'd be looking at all this food and it, it would be i'd just be absolutely captivated with you know something as simple as having cow's milk on cereal in the morning yeah okay. and for me it was nutella yeah but nutella yeah nutella is uh yeah, once that's in, it doesn't get out. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and it was something that I noticed intensely at school and at, at kids' parties. I still remember the feeling of seeing other kids take maybe one or two bites of a certain kind of food that I would just be obsessed about and then just take a couple of bites and leave it. And I'd be like, oh my exactly. God, are you, are you not going to finish that? Like other kids would take a couple of bites and then go out to play. And I'd be sitting at the, the table um, at the birthday party, just like, oh my God, look at this spread. I can have everything. And yeah, so that's really interesting that you should mention that. How common is that? It's really common. And as you say, like, I mean, your mother was definitely doing her best for you. You know, that that's like, I'd say with the best of intentions and back to those kind of external cues. I mean, like how many messages are we getting about food and, you know, mm. don't eat carrots. They're going to make you, I don't know, grow another leg or something like it. You know, there's just so many <laughs> messages coming at parents all of the time about what is healthy and what is unhealthy. And even that, that dichotomy is so kind of polarizing and difficult to kind of disentangle. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really common that, you know, parents will have these very, very tight rules, believing them to be the best way to raise children. And certainly, like, children do need boundaries. I mean, there's a reason yeah. why we don't allow children to drive. They're, they're, <laughs> their brains haven't <laughs> developed fully. <laughs> like, they, yeah. they do. They do need boundaries. But with children, the more kind of autonomy they can have, or th- at least within within reasonable boundaries over what they're eating, how they're eating, how much they're eating, the more those kind of intuitive eating behaviors should develop. Mm. Because it sounds like there's a a delicate balance between, you know, boundaries and then walking into what we might call orthorexia type territory. It's one of the, one of the things that, that we've noticed or that, you know, nutrition coaches, dietitians, like that we've noticed that the more, I'll use the word science very liberally here. The words, the more science, the more the more studies, the, the more information 
pseudoscience, whatever, is is out there making claims about the the benefits or the toxicity of different foods, the more people tend to overthink uh, what they're eating, what they're feeding their family, the the more boundaries, the more limitations they placed on they place on what they allow themselves, and in turn, obviously, what they allow their kids. Is this on the rise? Is this kind of thing? happening more and more or is it just something that we're aware of that's it's definitely something so um I did my PhD in New Zealand um and we would have kind of the group that I was involved in would have done research with parents on how they feed their children essentially and this is something that the parents would have come you know mentioned to us is that you know we're getting so many messages we don't know what's good anymore you know like we're trying to only be organic, but that's so expensive, you know, yeah. and like just all of these different kinds of things that really are, as you say, pseudoscience. I mean, a lot of them are based on correlational studies and mm. you can find a correlation between a lot of things. It doesn't mean they're related to each other necessarily. Um, yeah. Or that one is having any major effect on the other one. So no, it definitely is. It definitely is something that's becoming more and more. And as you say, with, the amount of information that's so freely available like definitely as a researcher i i feel information is power but mm-hmm. um it has to be quality information as well yeah so we're getting that um that classic correlation versus causation kind of fact or that you know that that kind of factor appearing here where people are being told things in regards to different foods or, or different food groups that's based on a correlation rather than a causation for for anyone listening who maybe hasn't heard that particular term yeah. before the difference between correlation and causation when we're looking at different food groups or studies or information about different foods um so correlation means that there is um an association seen between two things so i'm trying to think what could you correlate you could correlate a person who eats a lot of spinach with having a lower risk of cancer yeah so you, you could say that there's a correlation there does the spinach cause a lower risk of cancer we've no idea like mm-hmm. you know you need to look at all of those other factors so that's where a causation comes in and that's kind of actually during covid we've heard a lot about modeling i presume everyone's heard about modeling so that's yeah. where you take a lot of different factors that are known to be correlated with the risk of cancer and you put them all into a model together and then you find out which of those kind of is the strongest factors that are um, associated with that risk. And those are the ones that seem to be having the most impact. Right. So there could be other things like, you know, maybe people who eat a lot of spinach have a lot of money to spend on spinach. You know, yeah. And we know that your um, general income affects your health as well because you've got more money to go to specialist doctors and that kind of thing. So there's there's a lot more to it than just, you know, breaking it down to very, very narrow correlation studies. And yeah. there's a lot of them out there. Researchers need to get published to keep working. So mm. you do have to be kind of aware that not all research is necessarily the best quality either. That's an incredible statement just to take a second to reflect on that, researchers need to get published in order to keep working so there's a a personal investment obviously in being published which of course there would be but considering what it takes 
to actually be published. You're only going to be published if you come up with something that is attention grabbing or sounds or sounds like something really important. Like no one's going to get published for saying, yeah, the sky is still blue. So <laughs> there's like that personal investment in, in creating yeah. research that actually grabs attention. Is that kind of true? There definitely would be an element of that. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's like not for all people. I mean, there's the other thing that you may have heard of like predatory journals. So they're a type <laughs> of journals that aren't really actually high quality journals and you know, they, they don't operate very good peer review systems and that kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, I could submit something tomorrow and get it published by the end of the week to one of those journals. When you get to study as much as I have like I've been very fortunate that's that stuff that I understand now and I, I suppose I'm, I'm aware that this is information that not everybody has you know mm -hmm. and kind of how to look out for those kind of things so it is about well, without sounding like a conspiracy theorist it, it is yeah. about you know questioning where your information is coming from yeah so not all research is quality research exactly yeah yeah so just another thing that I wanted to run by you, the whole do as I say, not as I do mantra is still quietly pretty strong in regards mm -hmm. to food or more than just food. But let's talk about food in regards to food in, in most households. Like, for example, a lot of parents put a lot of pressure on themselves to eat a certain way in the name of their appearance, yet would never actually dream of putting their children through that same experience. But what are the children in those situations really picking up from their parents relationship with food even if the parents aren't saying the child should do what they do they're still saying that you know you should have a good relationship with food you should you know eat whatever you want and and do this and the parents are trying to encourage good things while at the same time being very strict very restrictive in regards to themselves what kind of messages does does that deliver what results kind of come about as a result of that well i mean children are like sponges yeah they're soaking up everything from around them and for most children their parents or you know whoever they're living with at home are the main people they're looking to for their understanding of how the world works and how it should be so um we we know that like role modeling is a major thing in terms of how children's um eating behaviors develop so so what they see you do is what they want to do mm -hmm. so it even if you are saying one thing but doing another they're they're looking to you and saying well you know that's that's not what you do i, I want to be like daddy and do what yeah. daddy does um yeah. and we've seen we know like children they repeat what we say when we don't want to <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah 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 <laughs> and you know like they are like little sponges and they are soaking that up and that's becoming part of their frame of reference for what, you know, this is how people eat. They, they are, even if you are saying differently to them, if they're seeing it, it's, it's getting into their um, conscious awareness. Mm. So it's definitely like they're, they're looking at what the people around them do rather than listening to what they're being told. Yeah, well, I think most parents would know that children aren't always listening to what they're told. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I remember, uh, you know, ordering cappuccinos uh, from restaurants when I was, you know, still about seven or eight years old, not because I thought that they tasted amazing, but because dad was having one and I exactly. wanted to be like dad. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's it. Yeah, even when I when we were in Australia and I, I worked in the childcare centre, I remember the kids would be playing um cafe and they'd be ordering all sorts, you know, frappuccinos and lattes and stuff, <laughs> and things that they'd never drunk before. Yeah. But you know, because these are two year olds, but yeah. you know, that's that's what they they're seeing and hearing and that's they're they're modeling themselves on what you're doing. Mm. Is I recently worked with a guy who just you know such a heart of gold this dude he worked really hard on our on our program to you know bring some freedom and normality back to his eating habits after a very long time uh wrapped up in you know diet and fitness industry or the you know the the darker side of diet and fitness industry stuff like quite obsessive training uh heavy calorie restriction and one of his big motivators for for actually finally do it because he'd been in that situation for many many years but one of his kind of primary motivators to really ripping the bandaid off and just getting that done and, and fixing his dynamic with food is that uh, he realized his daughter was becoming more and more like him, like yeah. ev- every single day. And, you know, his, his daughter was a real sweetheart and he didn't notice her really copying his habits with food you know, pace for pace. But at the same time, he realized that she was or is very like him in a lot of ways. And that was just such a a huge motivator for him to go, all right, I need to fix this because I don't want her to experience the same thing. Yeah. Because I mean, with any kind of um, behaviors, we know like intergenerational kind of behaviors are so strong. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, going back to that, thing of you know kids are picking up what they see and the behaviors and you know how people behave especially within their immediate circle have a really really strong influence on what they see as the normal way to behave so yeah that, that's really great though that he um he recognized that yeah he's a he's a pretty cool guy he did well and as well have you noticed a difference between uh boys and girls and the way that you know growing up the way that they either handle food or the way that their problems are dealt with or, you know, just anything there that um, that might stand out to you as, as interesting? Um, well, certainly um, in terms of problems and how they're dealt with, like, you know, um, I think the phrase toxic masculinity yeah. is something that people may have heard of before yeah. um, in terms of how, even from a very young age, how boys are taught to dealt or to deal with problems and Mm -hmm. you know again going back to that kind of overriding of um regulation there's like boys are kind of taught to override their emotions Mm -hmm. so for example that like if if a little boy falls over you know he might get that kind of oh you're a big strong boy don't 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 cry you know you'll be fine and you know pat him on the back and wave him on Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, a girl might fall over and, you know, it's, there's more kind of, oh, no, are you okay? And more kind of sympathy shown to the girl and, you know, she's allowed to cry. That, mm-hmm. Like, so those kind of things do kind of influence how, even when they're much older, how men can acknowledge problems or more, more likely can't or, or don't want to acknowledge problems because it's seen as, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not a big, strong man. If I, if I have any kind of problem or any kind of weakness, I, I'm not able to, to talk about it. Mm. Yeah, which we see a lot, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a shame, but I think that like, you know, stuff like your work and, you know, 
people are definitely becoming more aware that actually it's okay to have kinds of weaknesses. I mean, we, we all do. And that the only way to kind of get through those is by acknowledging them and you mm. know, doing some work on it. We can't just keep pushing it away going, no, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Exactly. It's fine. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Yeah. I'm a man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Cool. So if there was like a few key points or a few key bits of information or even just something that's really close to your heart that you would want any parents listening to actually hear or, you know, some people who might not feel like they can pinpoint where their problems with food started and maybe feel like it came from a really young age, what would be a few messages that you'd really like to leave people with? Yeah, well, certainly for people who, you know, maybe are having those kind of, you know, disordered eating, like binge eating and that kind of thing. Like if you, if you could kind of sit down maybe and just think, have a think to yourself about some of those, as I said, those food rules that you Mm -hmm. may have been taught at an early age. So sometimes with kind of back to that acknowledging and working on something, even to be able to kind of bring it into our awareness that Mm -hmm. actually this is where this comes from. Now, now, now I remember. It does kind of help you to be, first of all, more empathetic with yourself, you know, because if you can kind of have more understanding of where these behaviors are coming from, you can have more empathy for the fact that actually it didn't just happen last week. You know, like mm. these are things that have been happening, you know, and, and building over time. Um, so definitely, I think that's really useful and it can kind of help you to challenge those sort of yeah. behaviors as well. If, if you've, you know, you're like, actually, you know, there was no reason that I could only have Coke on Sunday. Too. <laughs> yeah. If I had Coke on Tuesday, the world wouldn't have ended. Yeah. So like, yeah, to kind of reframe your thinking around these things. And that's with any kind of, you know, psychology, they'll always try and bring you back to your childhood and, you know, think about reframing um, those messages that you learned. Mm-hmm. And for parents who um, may have young children and they're kind of thinking about, oh, God, you know, like, like that guy you talked about, you know, I, I don't want them going through the same stuff that I'm doing. Like, I would definitely encourage them to look up um, resources for intuitive eating with children. Um, again, be mindful of where you're getting that from. I know in Ireland here, the kind of National Health Service has actually quite really good up-to-date resources um, for Mm -hmm. parents of young children um, around feeding behaviours. Definitely what we say is that you want to be given children autonomy, so like the freedom to kind of choose what they're eating, how much they're eating, when they're eating, but within reasonable guidelines or boundaries, you know, like so it might be a case that there's three different vegetables on the plate, but they're only going to eat one and that's fine. You know, they, they like that vegetable and they're eating a vegetable and they've made the choice to eat that vegetable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, with, with the kids, definitely, as I said, autonomy within, within boundaries. Perfect. Amazing. And one more thing, uh, parents who were just seeing attention grabbing headlines in regards to different foods, like we just kind of touched on, like this is toxic or this causes that, or maybe even this prevents cancer or that can make you fly or, you know, anything, any of these really attention grabbing headlines that, that appear to what degree should those things really be affecting 
our food choices in a family context? First, you know, I'm not a dietitian, so like I can't give like specific dietary recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I'm aware, fruit and vegetables don't tend to hurt anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what we know with food is too much of anything is bad. Yeah. You know, like so if I ate sat down and ate only apples for the rest of my life, that's that's not going to be good for me. Yeah. Um <laughs> so I think it's just kind of sticking to common sense, which most people have, you know, yeah. like and essentially, I don't know how to say you might have to edit this out, but um we're all going to die. <laughs> it's, it's not <laughs> nothing you eat is going to make you live forever. Yeah. So um just to be aware that we're we're only here once and we have to live our lives and enjoy like food is to be enjoyed yeah you know especially as i said we live in the western world where we've got such a range of foods available to us like why would we want to be restricting ourselves so heavily yeah thank you so much like i think there's so much that that people can take from from this chat and i'm really grateful for your time today so thank you no problem thanks very much And there we have today's episode. I hope you got something really valuable out of it. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me via Instagram at mkainecoaching, that's M-K-A-I-N coaching, or visit my website mkainecoaching.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'll be back with another episode very soon.